Mark Riscala, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining me. So, uh, yeah, so so you said you're you're in California. Uh, where in California are you? Uh, I'm actually in Los Angeles. Oh wow, well Los Angeles. I, I have a cousin there. That's, uh, how how is it there? Because he, he he used to love it and now he doesn't like it so much anymore. What do you, uh, <laughs> you know, I I think I think California is one of the most beautiful places you can be. You have the ocean, you have the mountains. You know, it can get hot, but the weather most of the time is is pretty good year round and. I think most people are 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 always when they when they talk about leaving California, they talk about the traffic and how hectic it gets out here when you're trying to get to work. It takes you know 50 minutes to go 20 miles, which is kind of crazy. And then I think some people kind of uh, you know since politics up and down these days, people people have been like, oh, I want to go here, or I want to stay there. But I'll be honest with you, I, I've been around in other states and I can't imagine living anywhere else. It's just so beautiful here. I, I wish it wasn't so expensive, but you know. I guess that's the 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 price you 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 pay for for something so beautiful. Yeah, yeah, that that's true. I, yeah, we we had a vacation a few years ago in San Francisco, and um, I mean the beach was incredible. The uh, the city was was nice. I mean, just everything was great. It was a great time. But but yeah, it was I, I, we could never have afforded living there. I mean, it was very expensive. Yeah, it's San Francisco, especially you know I, I think because they're they've run out of room. <laughs> run out of room up there to build so it's like you know you you pay you have to pay a lot more for a lot less um down in la you know it is it's kind of big and scattered so you have you know santa clarita san fernando valley and then you have los angeles and so you can kind of you can kind of get away and if you're willing to do a, a 45 minute drive it's reasonable it's not like san francisco where you're paying you know 1.2 million for a you know 500 square foot or 800 square foot home um here that'll that'll get you a lot more yeah. So, uh, yes, I was reading about, and I don't know if I read right. So do you actually have a, like a, a rehab facility where you actually use a psychedelic therapy for, for people? So we've started a company um, called Tulua Health, which its target is that. So right now it's still kind of too early in the game to do that. And so what we've started is we have a mental health outpatient in Santa Monica where we're treating people, um, uh, for depression, PTSD, substance use disorders, things like that. Um, and then we're basically branching out. So in 2023, Oregon is allowing the opening and use of psilocybin in treatment centers. And so that's kind of what we've been waiting for. We've launched for this, and we're going to be transitioning into that. Um, right now, the only work that's really being done with psychedelics is kind of retreats, people doing retreats. And, you know, if I'm honest, it's not really... It's not really my style because retreats are really for people who can afford them. Does that make sense? My goal and my hope for psychedelics is that we're administering it to all the, the young people I'm working with now who don't have anything, who don't have any money, who don't have, you know, they have nothing but problems, basically. And um, so that's kind of what we're working towards, you know, and, and it's still kind of early in the, in the research um, stage and, and dosing and all that stuff. It's still, it's still kind of just becoming viable. So we're kind of at the forefront of, of getting to that. Oh, that, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and, and I did just have a, uh, a meeting with someone that um, I had a, a podcast interview with someone that she, she does retreats and she says she does occasionally do psychedelic therapy with, with her uh, clients at the retreats. So, but yeah, that is a very expensive uh, thing to do. And, um, yeah. and she is in Oregon and, and, you know, uses, she said LSD and psilocybin, um, 
but uh but yeah that that's incredible so you your plan your goal is to make it accessible to, to anyone pretty much yeah i mean if you if you're looking kind of for me and where it started you know working with with young with young clients 18 to you know 27 you know i realized that we you know we have the, we have some tools now but a lot of these these kids are dying you know we're losing we're losing a lot of kids to heroin overdoses homelessness is skyrocketing because these kids are ending up on the street and i realized that this happened a couple of years ago which you know our tool belt is not that hefty we don't have enough tools and so that's kind of when i started expanding outside of the traditional stuff and looking and and the amount of research that's been done you know, specifically on MDMA for therapy, as well as, you know, using psilocybin, it's, it's incredible. You know, with, with MDMA, I think MAPS did a study where they took 107, um, 107 clients that were treatment resistant. And, you know, compared to their placebo group, they administered, I think, for three months, they were doing three MDMA sessions a week. And, you know, the, the placebo group got better by 23%. And the MDMA group, got better by 63%. That's, that's, that's huge. You know what I mean? Like it, right now, I think we're, we're, we're working with maybe 7%, 6% or 10% success rate. And that's probably over two or three months of treatment, right? When I have you in my care and you're isolated, I can make you better. But then when I discharge you back out to the world, it, it doesn't, it doesn't always stick, Right. We have a lot of repeat offenders um, with substance abuse. We have a lot of people who fall back into depression and we're not seeing numbers like 63%. We're seeing 7%, 6%. Yeah. So do you think though, by, um, are you talking about like the, that a person might go into like a, a rehab program or would it be outpatient? Like, like would, would there still be that same situation as they go for therapy and they get yeah. psychedelic therapy and then like, what would be sure. the maintenance long-term? Yeah, I think so. What they found with the MDMA study is that after the initial um, three months, they saw a huge improvement. And then they followed the clients for 12 more months and found that that 63% turned into 68% and that the clients were continuing to get better and they were not using MDMA, right? It was just during that time that they took it to do the therapy. And that's kind of the, the, the interesting thing with psychedelics, right? Because you have kind of two schools of thought with psychedelics. You have the people who are seeking some spiritual awakening and they're pursuing psychedelics. And then you have this, this healing side to psychedelics that's going to be used, you know, clinically in a setting. Um, and it's not to say that after these clients took it, they won't take it again. But I don't know about you. I, I know some people, especially in my younger years, um, who were really addicted to taking MDMA. And I know it inherently it's not addictive like opiates is, but that feeling that that high you get that that euphoria, you know, can be dangerous to some extent if overused because you kind of get into this life feels really good when I'm on it and it doesn't feel so good when I'm off it. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's why we're, we, we're, it's huge to make sure that psychedelics are, is done alongside with therapy. Right. As opposed to like right now with ketamine, right? Most, there are a lot of centers in LA doing ketamine. There are a lot of doctors doing ketamine, but they don't do it alongside therapy. They kind of just put you in a room and, and, and give you ketamine. And yeah, that's great for like an acute uh, symptom. Someone who comes in and has suicidal ideation and is feeling, you know, really down, then sure, that, that works immediately and it helps them immediately in that moment. 
but there is no lasting effect because there isn't a therapeutic component attached. Uh, yeah, they really need the therapy. I mean, with, without the therapy, that's, um, I mean, I mean, in fact, that's something I thought was interesting that um, a lot of people that have addiction issues that, you know, people that use uh, heroin, fentanyl and cocaine, other drugs have, have already taken MDMA and probably a lot of psychedelics in their, in their youth early on. So, uh, but they definitely were not pre-treated. You know, those psychedelic experiences may have been profound. They may have had spiritual experiences early on, but somehow they still ended up progressing to, to hard sure. drugs. You know, I, I think one of the issues is, and this is something new, we, we, are, we are out here treating mental health, right? And we have substance use clients and they, it's, it, they don't see themselves as, a, as, as mental health. Which is, which is ironic, right? Because to me, substance abuse is a side effect of a mental illness, right? And, and when you say mental illness, I think people initially think things like schizophrenia, like more acute mental illnesses, as opposed to like depression and anxiety and PTSD, which, you know, I'd say nine out of 10, you know, addicts um, in treatment are suffering from some kind of PTSD from early childhood stuff. So w- when we, when we look at like, oh, yeah, I, I did MDMA and, and, yeah, I, you know, I, I went to another place and I, I talked to different people and I felt all these things and it was great. They came right back to their life, right? And their life was, you know, maybe a, a bad mom and dad who aren't really there or mom and dad who are drug addicts. They came back to their friend circle, which was a friend circle full of drug addicts um, in an area that, they're, that all they really did was buy and use drugs. So when you kind of don't change the outside environment, and all you're doing is adding something, you're not doing anything, right? No one is, is healing with that. And so our goal and our approach has always been to work on like the whole system. You have to kind of dislodge that person. The center you create has to create a family environment, right? It's, if, you come, if you come to our center when you're in LA and you come visit us, it's, we're creating a family environment. That's the most important thing because clients are not just gonna heal from therapy. They're not just gonna heal from psychedelic therapy. They're going to heal from the system you build around them. And if you're not treating the whole system, right? I've had many clients come in. We've got them happy and well, and they stopped using heroin, for example. And they're now, you know, four months clean. But when they're leaving our care, they don't have a job. They have nowhere to live. And they're struggling, you know, financially. Guess what? Within probably 30 to 60 days, they're back using heroin. Because we didn't, we, we didn't cure any of the system. We didn't help the system. And that's kind of one of the biggest problems happening now and, and why we're trying to address that. And, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, for me, it's, it's how many tools can we get? Because what we're doing currently is not working at a high rate. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a difficult problem. And there's a lot of uh, individual situations. I mean, it's with a million people in a million different situations. And, uh, you know, it's very difficult to extract somebody from, from their bad environment. You know, sometimes they, they even want to be there. You know, and it yeah. might be hard to talk them out of getting coming out of it. Yeah, so, yeah, for sure. But uh, uh, yeah, that, that's. Uh, the, I, I was thinking about that, and I'm sure you're familiar with this that prison experiment. I think with Timothy Leary, Timothy Leary, and probably Richard Albert and that group, like before things went bad in the '60s with LSD, but they did mm-hmm. that. They did an experiment with prisoners, and um, they apparently had a hundred percent success rate. Giving them LSD treatment and therapy, and and nobody went back to prison. Everybody did really well, but uh, the yeah. criticism was that that maybe it was them, uh, pre, you know, developing a connection and, and making sure that they were 
you know, given a life outside of prison more so than the LSD treatment. You know, that was, yeah. you know, so, so maybe, you know, people were criticizing saying, well, maybe you could have just taken great care of these people and given them a life and you, maybe they didn't need the LSD. No, I think, you know, I think both help. And I'll tell you, I think it was um, Gabber Mate, who's, who's, a, who's, you know, you can look him up, great dude, really talks about kind of healing the entire system. And, and he said it best, you know, it's something that we see every day. These people and people, especially people in prison, people, substance abuse issues and mental illness, they've been struggling with a series of defeats probably from childhood, right? So you, you have um, one bad thing after another. And they kind of see the world through a lens that is that eventually becomes dark because the events that have happened to them, the events that they've experienced, they're not winning events. They're mostly losing events. Right. And when you add something like LSD or psychedelic and you 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 kind of go on a trip to to connect with the universe. And that's what ends up happening is some kind of connection that makes you kind of understand more about yourself, more about the world. And you kind of get a little bit of a victory, right? You realize that there is hope, that there is connection, that there is love because you're experiencing this when you're on the psychedelic. So when you come back, you, you, you come back with a little bit of a victory and that victory can give you the boost to better your life. And I think that's what we're seeing when we look at all the, all of the studies that they've been doing, which, you know, right now they're, they're mostly phase two studies, which really is about dosage and, and efficacy, but they're, they're about to start phase three studies for psilocybin. They're starting phase three studies for MDMA. So we're around the corner. And what we're seeing is that the one, it's, it's helping people open up about their trauma. Two, it's helping people connect with the universe, which is helping them realize more about themselves and how valuable, important, and connected they are to everything. And that's huge when you're, when you're feeling alone, isolated, depressed or when you're feeling alone, isolated and have been basically abused your entire life, that's a win. And so I think making sure we create a system for them to have a job and to do X, Y, and Z, that's, that's hugely important. And adding the psychedelics where, where it fits in, right? I don't think every patient or every client is going to be a good candidate. I think it, it's going to be reserved for more treatment resistant clients clients that are not getting better using antidepressants that are not getting better with, you know, 90 days of, of intensive therapy and group therapy, those will be the people. Um, but I, but I, I think that that study definitely kind of opened the door, but sadly with psychedelics, it's, it, there's a lot of political pressure, right? We're talking about drugs that are, that are classified, you know, as schedule ones and don't want to, they don't, the world doesn't really have access, you know? Yeah. And it, it's really heartbreaking that someone can come in with severe depression and want to kill themselves. And we have a tool that we could potentially use, but we don't have access to it. That's really the, the kind of heartbreaking thing with psychedelics in, in its current state. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I was wondering also, there's so many different psychedelics and, and they're not all the same. It's not, they're not interchangeable. Um, I mean, there's ketamine, which is being used now because it's probably one of the only legal ones that may be the only okay. legal one. And then you have psilocybin, MDMA, LSD, uh, ibogaine, ayahuasca, DMT. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. they're, they're pretty much all different experiences. They all do different things. And, yeah. um, is, are there like different ones? And, and you mentioned uh, MDMA and, and psilocybin, which I know partly is because they'll, they'll be uh, available to some degree on the yeah. West Coast. But uh, I mean, do you see a place for like the other ones or in different situations and different uses? 
yeah, I think right now, you know, ayahuasca and and um, and ibogaine are, are are much they're much more intensive uh, in their in the way they work, and the trip is different. So what what I think we're seeing, you know, MDMA is is much more mild and can be used kind of in a clinical setting, I think, easier than ayahuasca can be. Um, yeah. You know, when we looked at some of the, the treatments that are being done in the UK with ayahuasca and, and, uh, and uh, opiate disorder, uh, it's, it's huge, right? They're reporting, you know, huge successes. And it's, it's not like these large studies, so we can't, like, take it for what it is right off the bat. But, you know, we have centers that, that reported something like 50%. You know, that's, that's huge. With heroin addicts, yeah. we're doing 2 to 3% here. We're not, we're not doing so well. We're kind of losing this fight. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, MDMA and, and psilocybin are the closest to being done. So that's what, that's what probably will be used more often than not. But with ayahuasca and ibogaine, what, what we are seeing, which is really cool, is that it's kind of changing and reprogramming people's minds. And, and I'll give you a, a good example of this. I have a good friend of mine who's a professional. She struggled with heroin you know, 15 years ago, she's been clean for 15 years. She told me that she craved regularly and, and, you know, maybe not a high level of craving, but the, the, the remnants of the use was there and her body still wanted to use some form of opiate. And she did a great job, but she said, every day I fight. So she recently did an Ibogaine retreat. And she, <laughs> the one thing she reported was that it was kind of, it was kind of tough. It was kind of miserable, right? So when she took it, Obviously, she's experiencing the, the vomit and all that stuff that comes with kind of the before the psychedelic starts to work. And then she said afterwards, she, she barely slept for like five days. She had trouble sleeping. But she said when she came back, she felt like a different person. And that's kind of what we're seeing with the early studies is that it, it's kind of changing the way the brain works and how the person perceived themselves. And so when she came back, she said, you know, I, I'm not experiencing the same feelings I was before. I feel like a new person, like a different person. Right. Yeah. And so it, it, it's, it's, that's huge, right. To take somebody who's been struggling and to help rewire them. Um, I think the only downside with those is that you don't really know how it's going to go. You know what I mean? Her experience was great, but if you did a Google search on the internet, there are people who are telling you not to take ayahuasca because their experience was not great. And I think that's why those ones will be a little bit, further back because they have the ability to kind of give you a bad experience. Right. And, and that bad experience won't, you won't gain anything from it. You'll just come out kind of traumatized. And yeah. that's, that's not going to happen with MDMA. There's a, there, I don't think there's anyone in the world who's taken MDMA and, and wasn't running around talking about peace and love because that's what MDMA does. And I think that's why it's, it's the pack runner right now. Um, not only that, but it also allows you to speak, which is great. Whereas some of these other ones take you to like a catatonic state, right? Where you can't, you're not really interacting with this world because you're interacting with another world in your mind. So you can't really sit with someone and talk, you know, a shaman can yeah. guide you, but you can't talk. So with MDMA and psilocybin, you can talk. And that's, that's huge because that talking is what, what we want to see. We want, we want you to sit with somebody and we want you to talk about what's going on, about the things you're experiencing, the things you experienced. And then, you know, so we can work past those because if we don't, if we don't do the therapy, we're not, we're not going to make any difference. Like you said, it, we're all just going to be in a circle getting high 
and and you know that's fun but it's not it's not the the healing side of psychedelics that's more the spiritual pursuit yeah yeah and that makes sense um yeah people can talk now mdma i the way i heard people describe it like if you put two people in a room and give them both mdma um they're just going to be in love with each other and just all happy together and um so so yeah but uh there, but yeah, and I know there's studies, the PTSD studies, where they, they're having great success with it. Um, mm-hmm. I've heard uh, Andrew Huber, Dr. Andrew Huberman on his podcast. He's talked about it a lot. He seems really uh, uh, interested in it, and he talks about how, how it's unique. And there's no, uh, I think he said there's no no natural uh, process that recreates it. It causes a release of multiple neurotransmitters at once. Uh, but mm-hmm. he was very interested in, in the use of it therapeutically. Um, you know, so. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about that, about how it actually works and, and why it's so, how it can be so useful? Yeah, so, I mean, like you, you touched on, you know, we're talking about a, a release of multiple neurotransmitters that, that can't be accessed in any other way. And I think traditionally what we've tried to do with SSRIs is, you know, the, the, the serotonin was kind of our, our attempt at saying, hey, how can we force the, the mind to, to feel better? But the, the release going on, um, chemically with MDMA, you know, you can't really recreate. So what's happening is you, you kind of go into a very euphoric world. And so when you're used to, when you're used to a world where everything is painful, that euphoria from the, from the release, from the hit is incredible. The only, the only downside. And, and, you know, I, I think that the important thing is people talk about psychedelics in a very positive way and that's great, you know, but I think the the things that we have to worry about are, there will always be people trying to escape and psychedelics are kind of the, the way to do that. And I think that that's, that's going to be the kind of dangerous side to psychedelics, right? Um, with MDMA, especially because you, it, I mean, you can go to any rave in, in your local area and you'll see probably, you know, 50 to 60% of the people there are, are touching and feeling and loving and feeling good. You know, and I'd say most of them are in MDMA, but they're not really seeking any any uh, therapeutic uh, release there, right? They're just trying to escape from their everyday world. So I think that's kind of some of the dangers um, that that we're going to face with MDMA um, being accessible is that you're always going to have that. Right? right now, we have a lot of advocates for psychedelics. A lot of those people just like doing psychedelics. And they yeah. know that if it's being pushed medically, then they'll have more access to it. So they're all for it. You know what I mean? But, but it's at the end of the day, it's those people are not going to use it beneficially and it's not going to help them get, it's not going to help us. Right. I'm looking to use it in the clinical setting. I know that sounds boring because it's not as fun. Now the clinical setting doesn't have to mean an office, right? It could be a clinical setting. Um, all, all that means is you have some kind of clinical team there to help you. That's it. Right. I'm not looking to send you into the woods on a bunch of MDMA for you to find your your uh, um, your your spiritual uh, healing or whatever. It needs to be done in that clinical setting or else we don't we don't get there. Yeah. 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 And like you said, it can be a pleasant clinical setting. I mean, you could have like, you know, videos of, of the rainforest and, you know, great. You, know, you could have, you know, the, the lights turned down. I mean, I, I've been in a there's a doctor's office where. They had all these like uh, kind of native, uh, you know, like dream catchers and stuff hanging from the walls and all these great things. And the lights were turned down and music and sound playing in the background. And it was like a really peaceful place, but it was yeah. a doctor's office. So, I mean, 
yeah, you can have definitely a pleasant clinical setting. Yeah, yeah, I think that's important. And just to, to quickly touch on the, the effect on the brain, really what we're, what MDMA is really doing is, is it's affecting the serotonin, dopamine, and, and norepinephrine. Um, you know, that's kind of unique. There aren't, there isn't much that messes with all three of those neurotransmitters. And that's kind of the, the chemical process. So it basically blocks the reuptake. Um, and that's what causes the, the feelings you feel. Whereas traditionally, we, we were with SSRIs really just kind of messing with, with serotonin um, and the reuptake of that. And now, obviously, it's all over the news that there's all these studies saying that, you know, maybe it's not doing what it's supposed to. And, and God forbid, maybe it's leading to people, you know, having suicidal thoughts or, or hurting other people. So that's kind of where we've come with that. So I think what's really cool is the world is ready, Right. Because the traditional yeah. method is starting to scare people. It's starting to go, wait a minute. And I don't think people realize that some people get on antidepressants and within, you know, six weeks start having suicidal ideations. I, I think people aren't really talked. They don't, they're not told. You don't go to your psychiatrist and he prescribes this and says, hey, by the way, you might feel suicidal in, in five weeks, right? They just go, hey, here's this medicine. It could help. There's some side effects, but, but let's give it a shot and let's see how it goes. And that's why they check in with the patient so regularly, because what we've seen is that, yeah, people, people start to become suicidal on it. Uh, some people have sadly taken their lives because of the medication. Um, and so I think the world is ready for, for the next step. And this is hopefully the next step. And I still think we're, I think we're about, you know, psilocybin next year in Portland, but, you know, realistically, it won't be fully adopted until the insurance company starts covering it, right? Because then business can come in, you know, right now business is coming in because they're, they're charging people cash to do these, these amazing retreats where they're out in the woods and, you know, they have robes on and they just kind of lounge and do drugs. Right. But the, the future of it to make it realistic, to bring it to everybody who needs it and doesn't have the resources, the insurance would have to cover it. And, and that's not really happening Honestly, and, and I, I might get some flack for this, but it's not happening until pharmaceutical companies come in, right? That's my thought. I think this, this psychedelic world, people are trying to keep the pharmaceutical companies out because they don't want them to, to, to mess with it or ruin it or to profit from it. But the truth is, if they don't come in and profit from it, they're, they're the ones who are going to lobby the insurance company, right? Me and you are not. You know, if we, if we tried to lobby the insurance company, they would just laugh at us. We don't have the resources, the money, or the energy to get out there and mess with this Goliath that is the insurance company, you know? So really we, we are, I'd say we're about maybe three to five years out from this being, you know, a regular thing. And I'd say about five years out from insurance kind of really covering this form of therapy or making it accessible for people. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a much better pathway than the, the pathway that marijuana has taken or cannabis and that, uh, it, it's illegal and legal at the same time. And, uh, you know, doctors aren't prescribing it. They're recommending it. It's a really unusual situation. So it yeah. does seem like a much better path to go through FDA approval, pharmaceutical companies, insurance coverage. Um, yeah, I, I think some people feel that it would lose its organicness. But I, I've worked, you know, in a subacute setting with schizophrenics. So I'm, I'm honestly a fan of the pharmaceutical companies. Now, that doesn't mean I trust them. It wouldn't mean that I, I, you know, I'd hand over one of my children to them and say, take care of my child. No, but they're a necessary evil in the world, right? They create sometimes bad things like, like Oxycontin, which kind of you know, accelerated the opiate pandemic. 
but they also do things that are incredible, like Haldol, which, you know, some schizophrenics, their lives was completely turned around by, by that drug. And, and so I, I'm a fan, you know, I, I've seen it work with people whose lives are, are horrendous and they, they hear voices and that's all they know. And then they take this medication and for 30 days, they feel great. So, yeah. you know, I, I think that I don't think it would lose its organicness. And, and, and I think that it's an important step for, for the adoption of this is the pharmaceuticals come in. And it's funny, you said that with, with marijuana. I, I, um, I just heard recently that apparently there's a, one of the reasons we're not seeing more studies done with, with marijuana and, and medicine. And I think it was Rick Doblin um, who, who runs MAPS. If you're interested in, in more psychedelic stuff, check out MAPS. They're, they're doing great work. And Rick is kind of one of the, 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 leading, the leading people in the world with psychedelics right now pushing. Um, he talked about a monopoly on, on weed. And apparently to do studies with marijuana, you can only use marijuana created by, uh, I believe it's a university and I can't remember which one, but basically you can only get weed from there in order to do the study. And the problem is they have apparently really shitty weed. So it's, so it doesn't work well. So you don't want to use their weed to do the studies to show that, Hey, marijuana when used in this situation or that situation can benefit somebody. So it's really crazy. If you look down, it's, it's kind of a funny rabbit hole, but they're trying to like get this overturned and make it so that they can use any weed for studies because they really want to show kind of the effectiveness in marijuana or test the effectiveness in different situations but the problem is right now is that you can only get it from one place to run their studies. And apparently it's really shitty weed. Oh, wow. Well, that's uh, yeah. And I'm kind of uh, on the fence about, about marijuana. Cause I, I don't want kids to think that it's a, a safe thing because it's not good for, for young people with developing brains. But I've seen that it really helps people going through drug withdrawal, uh, you know, even like protracted withdrawal from uh, psych drugs or from opioids that it, that it can help with the, uh, the tapering process and the withdrawal process. Um, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, it definitely has medical, legitimate medical benefits. Yeah. Um, I had a, a, I think it's, I think it's going to be used for a lot of things. I, I had a buddy of mine when I was young who had cancer and sadly he passed, but you know, one of the things marijuana helped him with is it gave him an appetite. Something as simple as that. Cause when he was going through chemo, he didn't have an appetite. So, when he used marijuana, it made him, you know, it made it possible that he could eat and that helped his strength because he needed it for the treatment. You know what I mean? So it could be something as simple as that. And I'm sure we'll find more complex uses down the line. Yeah, definitely. So, so with the, you know, I think one thing that limits, that limited uh, marijuana was the fact that it's, like you said, it's still a schedule one drug. Um, you know, psilocybin and I think MDA or MDMA are also uh, schedule one drugs. Would that change? Would that have to change for, for this to become like a pharmaceutical product? Yeah, yeah. And, and we're kind of seeing that change happen, right? So they, they haven't like decriminalized it, but they basically, you know, like in, in, in Oregon and those places, they basically said, I think it, it'll be Oregon and then probably Colorado will be will be next. You're, you're looking at, at those areas that, that'll really push for this. But what they're saying is basically they've reduced the penalty for it. So you're not gonna, you know, like before it would be something like crazy, like, you, you'd serve a lot of time for having X amount of this on you. Now it's not a priority anymore. So they're not really busting people. And we're seeing that happen with a lot of drugs. Thank God we're seeing it switch to, we're going to catch you with drugs. And instead of just straight up punishing you by sending you to prison, we're going to get you to treatment. We're going to get you to help. And, and that's really cool. So 
I think that we're making strides. Yeah, it, it can't work until they, they decriminalize it for sure. And the world is, is scared to decriminalize. But when you look at other places in the world that have decriminalized, um, you're not seeing the drug abuse that we're seeing, right? I think it, you're looking at, in some areas, um, I've heard of a few clinics that basically supply you with opiates. And I know this sounds really strange. They supply you with opiates in a clinical setting to make sure that the drug is clean, that it's pure, the needles are clean. But the only, the only caveat is you, you have to have a job. So if you, have, if you can hold your job down, they will continue to supply you with opiates. And when you're ready to quit, then they'll help you get that too. And I don't know about you, if you've been around opiates, opiate addicts, it's really hard to go work a job when you're high on, on opiates. You know what I mean? Yeah. So how long do you think that lasts, that they go to the clinic, you know, get the drugs and go to work before they start saying, please help me. I can't do this anymore. You know? Yeah. So yeah. It's... We're seeing... Go ahead. Yeah. I, well, I was going to say, I mean, I, I kind of see, you know, just from my own experience in treating patients, you know, I know like a pathway that, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, a pathway that works well for people with uh, opioid dependence and opioid addiction. And that if we can get a person on to use morphine and then keep them on it for at least a year, in some cases, uh, two or three years, um, they do incredibly well. They, they not only can hold down a job, but they can progress in their job. They can achieve incredible things. They, they do really well. Right now, the, the difficulty is the transition because the person has to get enough opioid out of their system start buprenorphine or they go into a precipitated withdrawal and yeah. with with the fentanyl that's on the streets at least locally i, I don't know if it's all over the country but uh, the fentanyl that's on the streets somehow gets sequestered in the fat cells or, or something happens where it stays in their system for for a very long time maybe, maybe a week yeah. or more and so they're going yeah. into withdrawal but they, so they can't th that transition is hard so what you just said is not legal in the u.s but if we could put someone in a facility or however we do it give them you know give them say for example oxycodone or hydromorphone and and if it had to be done inpatient that would be fine but put them yeah. on a known a known short-acting opioid to let them get the fentanyl out of the system without getting sick and then after yeah. that washout period then put them on buprenorphine which would be an easy transition going going from the, the short-acting opioid then keep yeah. them on that reliably which that's another difficulty fighting societal pressure but keep them on it for at least a year maybe longer for some people where they can get the appropriate therapy and change of life. And, yeah. and what we're seeing is when people do start tapering at that point, the difficulty is physical withdrawal. Uh, in, in many cases, people don't have the, they don't get opioid cravings when they start tapering off of uh, buprenorphine. But, but then, then that's like the, the other, that's kind of the missing link of the tapering process. It, it's generally has to be very slow and gradual and over time. And it's, it's difficult yeah. no matter what you do. Uh, something like medical cannabis can help to make it a little bit easier, possibly for some people. Um, yeah. Not that I'm recommending that, but um, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, there's a uh, you know maybe psychedelics could help with that 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 endpoint. You know, getting people off of buprenorphine or off of methadone. Uh, but yeah. yeah, there's definitely a pathway. It's just a matter of making it legal and accessible. Yeah, I think if you look at if you look at um, Suboxone, you know, when it when it first dropped, I, I had. I was working for, at the time, a, a, a bigger uh, treatment center. It was uh, Convalo, um, which was publicly traded um, on the Canadian stock market. And, and they had a couple centers out here. And I, I, I was one of the early Suboxone adopters. And man, let me tell you, they, don't like, they didn't like that at first. Everyone in AA 
and everyone in the community was so against Suboxone that nobody wanted to take them at their outpatient centers. And so you had these people who were trying to use Suboxone to get off of, of opiates and they were being shamed that they're not sober. Um, and that's, that's kind of from the outside. I don't think people recognize that, but the community is really harsh, man. I always tell addicts when I, when I was, you know, when I, when one would get in trouble or one would come complain about another client, which happens in treatment, right? You have this, you have all these people living together and they're struggling. Um, they're really judgmental, man. They're painfully yeah. judgmental. And I, I would, I would tell them, you know, hold, hold on a second here. You're here to get help for an issue. You're here to seek a loving place that has no judgments to help you. And you can't even see it in your heart to not pass that judgment on to a fellow addict who's struggling just as hard or maybe worse than you. And that's kind of what I realized is, is one of the big issues is there's a really negative effect and mindset around some of these things. And I think psychedelics is going to be next to get that negative mindset from the, from the old timers in AA in this, in this space. Because for them, if you're taking anything, you're not sober. You need to be abstinent to be sober. And it sucks because, like you said, if you can get somebody on Suboxone or some kind of buprenorphine over time and you taper them slowly. I've have, I have clients today that are still successful. And I, it was five years ago they were in my care. And they did Suboxone for a year. And they went from eight milligrams to six to four to two to nothing over one year. And I, my brother actually just ran into them the other day at the store and they're still sober. They're still doing really well. And these were heavy, heavy heroin users, like caught in, 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 uh, in treatment using caught in sober livings, using heavy users. Yeah. It's incredible. And, and, and so we have that tool. So boxing was just a tool. And like I said, I'm not a, um, I'm not, I'm not like the guy who's, you know, every weekend I'm in the woods doing shrooms, to explore the, the universe, I'm big on this is just another tool in the tool belt because we don't have enough and they're not working that well. So we need access. And so that's kind of why we've been pushing. And you see the, these guys at the forefront, thank God, the, the nonprofits that are doing the research are pushing for the legalization of these things. And we're not, we're not going to be able to access them. And like you said, look at weed. If we could use, you know, in California, we're, we, we are weed friendly. So you have to know everyone who comes into treatment or into our center is asking if they can use marijuana while they're in our care. And it's a really, it's a really tricky thing because we don't have a real good protocol. You know, you know, you tell someone, yes, you can guess what they're doing the smoke weed every day, sit on the couch thing. And that's not, that's not helping anybody. You know what I mean? So yep. really it's once we can legalize it, then, then we can all work together to, to develop good protocols that are actually effective. So that we can say, yeah, you can do this and this is how you can do it. And it's going to help you while we taper you off of this. Or if you're feeling depressed or anxious, maybe you don't smoke weed because for some people it has that kind of effect. So, you know, we have to develop these protocols. But while we have this big political and and legal machine in front of us blocking, we're not going to be able to really do that. And that's kind of what's been slowing this down. Um, But hopefully the world is changing. Um, I think people are recognizing that the heroin, the heroin addict is not that, you know, 23 year old strung out kid on the street, but it could also be the doctor. It could be the lawyer. It could be the teacher. And once people saw that, I think it scared them because it brought drugs a lot closer to their home. 
And so now I think the world is more open for alternative treatments. And, and I think that the prison system is changing. I know in California here, we're getting CARES court, which is basically saying, hey, you got caught with drugs. Instead of sending you to prison, we're going to send you to treatment for a year, which is yeah. huge. That's you. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Now, now, will insurance cover that treatment for a year? Absolutely not. They will, they, they will not, right? We get coverage for clients um, with severe PTSD, depression, anxiety, secondary substance abuse. We get, if we're lucky, we get 90 days of coverage here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's incredible what the government is capable of when, when it's people they care about. I mean, you know, we saw with COVID, you know, warp speed, let's get that vaccine out as fast as possible and get it to as many mm-hmm. people and pay for yeah. everybody. Uh, imagine if... and. and one inter- interesting thing was that before COVID, they were talking about the FDA was going to uh, fast track naloxone, you know, for opioid uh, yeah. overdose uh, reversal, you know, to save people from overdoses. They yeah. were going to fast track naloxone to be over the counter. So you, you didn't even have to walk up to a pharmacist. You could, I imagine it'd be like at the front counter at a, a, a supermarket mm-hmm. or something. Um, yeah. that, that was fast track. They're talking about fast tracking it what, like three, four years ago. Uh, COVID is come and almost gone and you know we have vaccines everywhere we're on the fourth booster and a new vaccine coming out we still don't have over-the-counter naloxone <laughs> that's that's so crazy to me right because it's like it could it, it, it say it's literally saving people's lives and it's very simple allow an addict to have this on them so that they can save someone's life like you said but yeah. it's not you know what i found is that everybody likes the idea of helping people who are mentally ill and uh, struggling with uh, substance use disorder. They like the idea of it. It's like, they like talking about it because it kind of sounds glamorous and like you're making a difference, but kind of just like homelessness in LA, no one's actually really trying to change it. Like it's not, there's a ton of money going into it. And that's what we're seeing now with, with mental health, right? I think Gavin Newsom is, is dropping tons of money um, to make it accessible for, for treatment of mental health and all that stuff. But I mean, they did the same thing with homelessness and it hasn't really changed. You know, the money gets gobbled up by a bunch of people. And, and I, I made the joke to my wife the other day, like when they drop the money for mental health, you're going to see all of these people come out of the woodworks applying for all kinds of things, grants and this and that. And then they're just going to vanish and they're going to start a couple of charities, do a couple of events, and they're going to eat up that money and disappear. There they're, yeah. they're, they're just isn't. They, people don't care as much about the addict because they they haven't spent time with the addict, right? If you ask a general person what they think about a drug addict, typically they don't say someone who's struggling. In their mind, it becomes like dirty and someone who's like, you know, kind of useless and doesn't want to do X, Y, and Z. And that's why they're struggling because it's their choice. And that's the perception. And that's that's not helping us either, right? It, it's really kind of slowing us down. And that's what's happening, I think, politically as well is they don't, it's not like somebody really wants to help. They're helping by throwing money at a problem. But you and I both know that it's money helps. Sure, it helps get more centers, but it's not necessarily going to be the thing that changes this. It's not going to be the thing that helps all these kids, these young people right now who are who are coming up, you know, an entire generation that's like, you know, I, I'd say, I don't know, a large chunk of that generation is probably struggling with some kind of opiate disorder. Yeah, and addiction, as, as I'm sure you know, it, it affects people, people who are intelligent, creative, and have a, a huge potential for success in life. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they tend to be affected by addiction worse because it uses your own best resources against you. Uh, it gets yeah. in your brain and kind of turns your own brain against you. So uh, those, yeah. kind of, those people, those people who would have been very successful in life, 
uh, have a much harder time getting over it. So if, if we were able to help, I mean, there may be like people we need to save the world could be out there on the streets using heroin or whatever. And uh, yeah. you know, if we could just get out there and help them. I mean, those are like really, I mean, they're all very important people, but uh, I mean, we, you know, it's, it's they're, they, these aren't people that are uh, d- dispensable or, you know, or whatever. I mean, we, we really, we need these people. We need to help them and get them back into yeah. society and get them back to, to functioning and, and living their life. I mean, so. Uh, yeah, I think people, people need to see it. You know, I, I, I've actually met with a couple of writers on the side. I was, I was trying to work on developing something for mental health and substance abuse to get on TV that isn't like dark and disturbing. And, and kind of the, the, the idea for that stemmed from, you know, when I first got into treatment and I'm what they call a normie in treatment, right? I, I don't use, I've never used heroin or any, any major drugs. I've never had a problem with that. But, you know, as a, I laugh when people call me normie because as a human, I have my addictions. They're just not drugs, right? I think most humans are addicted to something. If you drink a cup of coffee every morning, you're an addict, right? You just, yeah. you just don't, you just don't call yourself one because you don't realize what's happening. But when I tell you to stop drinking coffee, and that's the analogy I use with parents. I go, do you drink coffee? Yep. Been doing that for 20 years. Great. Stop tomorrow. Well, no, <laughs> no, I can't. Or no, I don't want to. Well, why not? Well, because I like yeah. my cup of coffee. Well, imagine how much more powerful heroin is than, than a cup of coffee, right? So I always kind of use that analogy. And, and for me, one eye-opening moment was this guy I met early on. I, I, I don't know if you know Passages in Malibu, a big company. I worked for yeah. them early on in, in, my, in my career. And I met a guy who was just awesome, man. The coolest dude ever. And I, I freaking love this guy. And we were chatting. And I'm like, look, he was an alcoholic. I'm like, dude, what is going on with you, right? You're such a cool person. And here I am from the outside coming in going, you're a cool person. You don't seem like an addict, um, you know, just being naive. Hey, wh- why can't you just stop drinking? You know, and this is around the time I had my, my second kid, right? I just had my second kid. And he looks at me and says, Mark, I had a daughter. She was nine. She was my only daughter and she died and I haven't been able to stop drinking since. And all of a sudden as a new dad, I looked up and went, Holy this, I understand. I, I understand. And that was that moment I had to make me realize like this guy's life is not so drastically different that he went down this hole. I, I could go down that hole. You could go, anyone could go down this hole very quickly, little things yeah or big things can happen very quickly. And this poor guy lost his daughter, his only daughter, and it spent, sent his life spiraling. So the addict isn't this person who's, you know, out there, a junkie on the streets running around. Like these, these are people, people struggling with mental illness, man. People struggling with trauma, with, with depression, with anxiety. And I think COVID kind of brought some of that to the forefront. You know, now we're seeing therapy become more accessible to people because of the isolation of COVID, the anxiety, the fear and all that that stemmed. But before COVID, you and I both know this has been going on for a very long time and, and people haven't been talking about it, um, which is heartbreaking because they see it like, oh, I'm a normal person, you're mentally ill, or I'm this and you're that. You suffer from these things, I don't, I don't need that. When I argue that probably most people suffer from some level of anxiety, some level, and then I think most people go through bouts of some level of depression, um, because I think almost everybody has had some things happen in their life that have been hard. And some people have better coping mechanisms than others, right? I had loving parents who were kind, sweet. And, and because of that, my coping mechanisms were different there. I surf, I exercise. These are the coping me- mechanisms I put into my life. But if you didn't, if you weren't so lucky to have that, 
then your coping mechanisms are different. And some of those are, are using drugs because it takes you away. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, we can't definitely can't relate to everybody's trauma. You know, you know, when you talk about, like, I, I sometimes tell people like things about, you know, like uh, gratitude is an important thing, you know, practicing gratitude every day. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, but another one is forgiveness. You know, they say, if you can forgive everybody, you're going to clear your mind and be able to get into a, a better state of mind. And there's been studies where they, they look at the brain waves of people who have been able to forgive. But, yeah. you know, I can't go to people and say, you know, go forgive everybody. Well, well, do you know what people have done to me? It's like, you know, well, no, I can't really relate to that. So it's really not my place to tell you to forgive them. I, I think that's where, I think that's where psychedelics are going to help. Right. Because when you're on, on MDMA, you, you're going to understand the world a little bit differently. And I, I think it's going to help you access those areas of your brain where you can forgive a person who raped you. You can forgive a person who molested you, right? These are the things that, you know, we see. I don't know if you're seeing this, but I'm seeing this. Most of the people in my care have been abused um, physically, uh, definitely emotionally. Yeah. Um, this is very common. And so when you're asking them to forgive, I mean, it's hard for me as the person, you know, I sit with, with a 21-year-old girl and she talks to me about how her father did X, Y, and Z. I want to go strangle the guy, right? I want to go tie him to a rope and throw him off of a building. Um, yeah. And so I can only imagine for her to get to that place where she can forgive. It's kind of hard, right? Because this is the person who kind of was supposed to love me and take care of me. And instead, they broke me. And here I am now suffering from that brokenness. And I think that the psychedelics are going to show the world um, a different side, right? To kind of disconnect from the human. And that's, I think, where the spiritual side kind of helps is as we disconnect and start to analyze that, you know, are we deeper than just, you know, Know, flesh and bone you know what about our souls what is what is the the world made up of what's it all worth and i think psychedelics are going to help people understand that there's so much more than just us and i think when they recognize that it's going to be easier to forgive the world and forgive the people who've harmed you and i think that's why we're seeing a lot of changes in people who use psychedelics and get therapy you know um and i, and I can cite there was uh, one of my therapists did a maps program maps offers therapy uh, or training for therapists it's incredible they 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 go through cases and and studies and and they actually they're a big advocate of giving their therapist mdma so that they can experience it what, what they can experience what the client is going through and it's it's a pretty incredible program again maps i can't say enough about maps but you guys can look it up and and see but one of the the, the studies he talked about was a woman who had got into a car accident and her family died and she was still alive, right? Her husband's gone, her kids are gone. And she's obviously, you know, she was driving. So there is this guilt, right? So when she was doing MDMA therapy, she was able to go back to the scene of the accident in her mind and able to see it from a, from a different perspective, an outside perspective. And it completely changed the way she saw the accident happen it released the guilt that she was holding on to um, and she was able to forgive herself and move forward with her life because she was able to see it from a different perspective that she wouldn't have been able to see when she was stuck in that, in that moment. And the MDMA gave her access to that. We couldn't have, you know, you couldn't have done that with her with just talk therapy. The MDMA gave her access to kind of see it from a third party, see it from someone else's eyes and then forgive herself. I mean, that was, that's huge. This woman, then we'll go on to live a semi-normal life. 
as normal as it can be. Obviously, this is a very traumatic experience, but she will go on to rebuild her life. And, and that's huge. And when he told me about that early on, when he was doing the, the work, my clinician, Chris, also a good friend of mine, it was, for me, it was like, oh my God, like, this is a person that we probably could not have helped in therapy. Like, there's no way. She would have done years of EMDR and, and all these things to try to, to heal. But she probably would have blamed herself for the rest of her life. And that would have always been the sticking point. But because she, she took this and had access to the MDMA, it, we were able to heal her. That's, that's huge. That's huge. And, and that was kind of the beginning of a big change for me and realizing that, oh, my God, we need this and we need it now because I have I have a hundred of those people just like her, different event, ready, waiting to be healed. And instead, they're constantly chasing the high so they can forget about the trauma. That's what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really deep. I mean, the idea that that the therapy can help someone forgive to overcome that that barrier where forgiving themselves or other people is, is, is impossible and it, it makes it possible. Um, yeah. That's, that's incredible. Um, you know, we think of, of MDMA, like you said, people at raves all, being all touchy-feely and falling in love with each other, but you could ask someone in a room with a therapist learning to love themselves with the help of MDMA. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, MDMA is probably going to be, you know, really exciting. Psilocybin's coming sooner. But one of the things with psilocybin, and, and, you know, we can look at, talk about some of the pitfalls in one of the studies done by Compass, which was the largest double blind study done on psilocybin. They had 233 patients. Um, they did three groups, one milligram, 10 milligram and 25 milligram. And, you know, most people, when they do mushrooms, they do an eighth, an eighth of a mushroom. And that usually gives you the, the, the hallucinations and, and that level of high. And that's 35 milligrams of psilocybin, Right. So their study went up to 25 milligrams, so 10 milligrams short of what someone would use to go, you know, see trees move and things like that. And what was what was interesting that within a month, they, they saw significant improvement within a couple of days and, and scores on depression tests dropped, you know, within six weeks. But one of the things they saw, which I thought was really interesting, is in out of the 233 patients, I think 12 of them developed suicidal ideations within six weeks. Right. And that's, you know, f I think five in the 25 milligram group. And then I think um, um, there was six or seven um, in the in the 10 milligram group that that got suicidal ideations. And that's kind of that's kind of scary. Right. So imagine we're at a center and and we're giving you, you know, 10 milligrams. But we're trying to find out what a micro dose is for you to help you with, with depression. And within six weeks, we're dealing with somebody who wants to end their life. So yeah. that's kind of some of the, it's not, we're not, we're not a hundred percent there. Right. And that's what I think is important to know. It's, I don't want people listening or people, you know, to go out there and start taking what they consider a microdose of a mushroom to feel better because you could, you could go to a place where, you know, you, you become suicidal, right? We haven't figured it all out yet. And that's why it's still kind of the, the exciting early days but I, I caution people that there is, there is, you know, there is some pitfalls and some of that is, you know, in this study out of, you know, I guess it's not a large size out of 233, 12 of them, but if we're not in a controlled setting, those 12 might end their life, right? If we're not in the yeah. setting where we have professionals who can see, Oh my God, you, you know, you're, you're now suicidal. We need to do something about it. And it's an acute problem. Well, you know, we could really, we could really hurt a lot of people with this. 
So yeah. I think that's some of the some of the pitfalls is going to be dosaging and understand how dosages work. And what's interesting is everyone's body is different, so everyone is going to react different, right? Now these were severely depressed people to begin with, but that being said, still it's not. I don't want people to, to look at this as the the cure all for everything. Again, it's just the tool, right? It's going to work for some people and change people's lives. And some people, it's going to have no effect. And we're going to have to go back to the drawing board and work on the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. And a potentially, like you said, a potentially dangerous tool. Like I'm right now, I'm actually sitting yeah. next to a construction site and, you know, they're in there using uh, drills and jackhammers and stuff. And we, we would not hand these out to the general public and say, look, here's a jackhammer. You can go uh, redo your patio. You know, how many people <laughs> yeah, are going to exactly. get hurt doing that? So yeah, yeah you, want, you only want to do these things under professional supervision. You know? Yeah, I think I think that's really important. And you know, you have a lot of really, you know, maybe there are people listening who love psychedelics and do them on the weekend, and that's great, recreation and all that stuff. But you know, I argue that if you really want to make an impact in your mental health, you add structure to it, right? You you have to have some structure to it, or else you're just getting high, right? And, and, yeah. and, I, and I don't want to, you know, the psychedelic community is big on like, hey, you can use them for fun, too. And that's great. And I think that's OK for some people. But I think it's very dangerous for a large population. Right. I think yeah. there are some people who should not use recreational MDMA, recreational psilocybin. I don't think it's great for everyone. And I, I think that's something that, you know, most people in the psychedelic community don't talk about. They, they kind of like the idea yeah. of like, oh, yeah, like you can use it casually and it's great for you, but we can also use it therapeutically. It's like, no, be mindful that this is this is a powerful thing. And and if if you go to use it casually and you're not a casual person, if you're someone who is kind of loves leaving this planet and kind of um, enjoys escaping because you have a hard life, this can be something that you abuse. And I, yeah. I don't think people like to say that in that community, but it definitely is. I know a lot of people who, who abuse MDMA. That's yeah. That's, yeah. Re I mean, recreational use of uh, psychedelics in the sixties set the industry back 40 years. You know, the, you know, we could have had 40 years of helping people. I mean, they were having like great early successes. And then unfortunately yeah. uh, the thought leaders went out and said, everybody should be doing this. And, and that kind of ruined it for, you know, for right. the uh, mental health care community. Yeah, yeah, you're actually right. That's that's for sure because you know you have you you have the recreational use leads to people who can't use it recreationally doing crazy things, and that yeah. gave everything kind of a bad image. And you know, I think the government, if we look back, the government was experimenting with with LSD and these things early on. Um, and there's some really cool. Um, there's a book uh, called The Realms of Human Unconscious. You can look it up. It's it's kind of that that LSD, the study of LSD early on, and that's the one we haven't really touched on, but I think one of the reasons is LSD is a tricky one. I, I think that there isn't that much being done with it right now. And ironically, the one thing they are looking at, this is going to sound so funny, is LSD for migraines. Obviously, obviously not a dose that is that is going to get you high, right? But like a, a small enough dose that you don't know it's there. But apparently they're having really great results with, with helping with migraines with LSD. Oh, Which yeah, is, that it kind of makes sense because I, I guess the stuff that comes from the fungus ergot stuff is used in migraine medicines already. So, mm -hmm. yep. So that's kind of cool. I, I like the idea. Again, if we can go to more natural forms, I don't want the pharmaceutical company to disappear, but I would love for them to kind of allow us to use more of nature um, and some of the, the powerful things that exist. Like, you know, I have clients who have anxiety and they want to take all these meds, and I, I tell them, 
well, let's look into looking at valerian root, for example, right? And some people, you know, feel all kinds of way about valerian root, but it's a pretty powerful thing and it's very simple, right? It helps you feel less stressed pretty immediately. And I think right now what ashkawanda is something everyone is talking about, um, kind of the same thing. It, it, it's, it's like, I, I always say it's nature's benzo um, because it has a kind of a similar effect on the body, but without the, the other effects that benzos give you, you don't kind of disconnect. Um, and it's, it's pretty powerful, but the world is kind of blocked off from it because, you know, the pharmaceutical companies want to push their thing. And I get that, but I see the kids who are taking Xanax and all these things and they're messed up, man. You know, I understand that this was developed to create some kind of relief for people, but the counter effect was, is, you know, I saw a girl launch a small dog across a room, someone who is sweet and compassionate. And I was like, what is going on with you? And she had just taken a ton of Xanax and she just, she was completely disconnected. She launched this dog. What was it? Can you say the thing again, that, that, that could be used for anxiety instead of medication? Uh, Valerian root. Oh, okay. Oh, right. Oh, Valerian, right. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's simple. And and some people, some people say it doesn't do anything, but I think for a lot of people, and I know I've used it myself in the past um, with sleep, um, I use it to help me sleep. So Valerian root and and Ashkawanda, again, you know, I'm not advocating everyone should probably check in with their doctor, but you know, I would look at, at alternatives to help with anxiety, especially if your anxiety is mild, but it's there. Valerian root's incredible. I mean, you feel instantly within, within, um, I'd say four days of, of taking just a thousand milligrams or 500 milligrams, which is not a lot, you'll feel a difference. And, and I have these clients who take all of these things and I try to kind of, Hey, let's look at, at, you know, an alternative to, to that. Um, and that's where, that's where I kind of see, I would love to see the pharmaceutical companies kind of open up the door for more of that. I'd love to see that. I still want them to make their money because I understand how the world works, right? Yeah. If we, if we, people are all about, oh, let's try to free this up and let's make it non-money and this and that. Well, there really isn't that much advancement when someone doesn't have uh, some kind of gain, right? That's just how it works. Yeah. I think everybody wants to be, wants to be silly about that. But the truth is everybody gets up in the morning and goes to work to make money. They don't go because they love what they do. There's very few people that go because they love what they do. And those people make a lot of money doing what they do because that's right. They worked hard to get there. So I'm, I'm a big advocate for the pharmaceutical company making money. That's fine. I'm a big advocate for that, but let's look at alternative methods to make that money. Let's not just kind of, you know, and I'll give an example. The gut is one of those areas, right? Where you go to the doctor and they give you medicine for your gut. Say you have acid reflux and they don't even check to see that maybe the problem is you have a low acid issue and you have all these people treating their low acid issue with, with a drink that involves apple cider vinegar, lemon, ginger, and cinnamon. I know because I did it myself. Right. And I, I think this is the kind of stuff that, that the psychedelic world is bringing to the forefront is let's look at what nature has to offer and how it could help us. I'm not saying that medicine needs to be thrown out the window. Medicine is powerful. And I know that, if you go to the doctor and you have a you have an infection, antibiotics are going to save your life, and that's that's huge, you know. But let's not in mental health. We're so quick to jump onto medicine. Like you go to to the doctor and they might give you Zyprexa, right? Well, there sure. are people out there who lost their kids because they were on Zyprexa, got suicidal, 
right? Yeah. There are alternatives to that. And that's the cool thing about psychedelics is because it's going to give us a, a healthier uh, nature's alternative to solve yeah. the problem that before we, we solved with pharmaceutical drugs. So, yeah. So I, I, I actually, I have to go in about five minutes because I have to pick up my mother at the, the train station, but uh, I have one, no one quick, quick, one more quick thing I, I was thinking of that uh, we started out, we mentioned ketamine and ketamine yeah. is legal. It's a schedule three drug. Uh, most yes. doctors can prescribe it. They can administer it. Um, not a lot of barrier to entry. Like you said, all over California, there's ketamine yeah. infusion clinics. And, and there's like a, a place that even ships ketamine to people's homes. There's infusion mm-hmm. clinics here. Uh, can, could you use that right now as a stand-in? I said, this associative anesthetic has definitely different effects in MDMA and uh, psilocybin. But could it be used as a stand-in for now, being a legal drug, you know, combined with therapy? Like, could you use it as an alternative or does it not really meet the needs of, of what we're yeah. looking for? Uh, yeah, I think it can be used as a stand-in for now. It just, there isn't a therapy protocol built around it, right? So that's the the problem with, with ketamine. Right now, everyone's using ketamine for treatment as a selling mechanism. Like, hey, we have this new unique way of treating you. We do ketamine. Come to the office. We'll help you. And they put you in a room, put some headphones on you, give you ketamine, leave you alone. Well, I don't, yeah, obviously that's going to, you're going to feel physically good. Sure. So that'll help you with your depression today, right now. But is that going to have a lasting effect on, on, on the traumas that happened in your life? No. So yeah, I think if that, we need to develop some more protocols around ketamine and therapy. I don't think a therapist would touch someone who's on ketamine right now and do talk therapy with them. So because we don't have a protocol, that's its pitfall. I, I think that's kind of one of the reasons why we don't offer it, why we didn't go down that rabbit hole is because we recognize that all it really is right now is giving someone ketamine and then leaving them alone and, and, and that's it, right? And that company yeah. that sells the ketamine, I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but you know, Rick, Rick Doblin talked about that. He said, it's convenient for them because they want to just sell you the ketamine, right? If they sold you the ketamine and the therapy and you got better in two months, well, you wouldn't need the ketamine anymore. So it, it, it kind of, it's kind of how it worked. It's kind of how they got it passed through some of the FDA studies and stuff is that they just said, hey, look at the, the, the acute effect it does immediately. And they're like, well, yeah, obviously it does. That sounds great. But at the end of the day, it became something that's just being sold now. And the idea isn't, hey, take ketamine to get better. It's take ketamine regularly. <laughs> and that's, yeah. that's kind of terrifying because ketamine is still a drug. It still has an impact on the body. And, and I've had people, I had one kid, believe it or not, who OD'd. He, all he did was ketamine. He loved ketamine. And he'd go into what they call K-holes all the time. And he loved yeah. it. it, it he did, wasn't doing anything with his life. He, he was just stuck. He couldn't move forward. He barely left his house. So ketamine is very dangerous when you use that way. And yeah. so I, I think that, yes, I think it can be used if we can develop some, some therapy protocols around it. But because we haven't, it's kind of why I would avoid it and why I would avoid doing the therapy. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. So it's, uh, yeah, one, one person people can look up to see what happens with a lifetime of regular ketamine use is uh, Dr. John C. Lilly, I think, the scientist that, that uh, pretty much, I think he invented the, uh, or he made popular the use of the isolation sensory deprivation tank oh you know, like, yeah, yeah and and he apparently used ketamine like regularly maybe every day for his whole life and like later in life was in contact with aliens and interdimensional beings and things like that sure. yeah he also i think he also did he'd also go into those those tanks which i don't know if you've done before they're they're cool but he'd also go into them on lsd which 
which, you know, if you've been in those tanks before in complete darkness, you're already kind of tripping in there because it's, it's such a strange feeling for your body to disconnect like that. To add LSD, I mean, yeah, I, I think if you do a Google search for people who do these things regularly, you'll find that they also have fried their minds <laughs> yeah. just, just, just the way other drugs have. Again, I don't want to have the, the bad image. Obviously, again, like anything else, it can be helpful when used appropriately. It's going to be awesome. But can you abuse it or use it stupidly? 100%. Will it have an effect on your body? Of course it will. And that effect will probably be negative. You know what I mean? It'll probably be yeah. negative. But yeah, but the potential for, for doing good, like, like you said, under the right conditions, uh, controlled and with the proper therapy, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, it's going to revolutionize the way we do, we do therapy and mental health now. I, I promise you, in the next five years, this conversation won't just be a, a side conversation. It will be the main conversation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, uh, yeah, Mark Risbala, thank, thank you again. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me, man. I had a great chat, and uh, hopefully we'll connect again soon.